Okay, so uh, we're going to read from 1 Peter and chapter 1. <coughs> so I'm now starting the video. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, so 1 Peter is a, it's a letter written to churches in Asia Minor, which is a modern day Turkey. So, yeah, this is Turkey here, this is on Google Maps, um, and if we can zoom in. That's the same area as it was back then, as you can see, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, and all those. Just so you get an idea of where we're uh, the sort of area of the, uh, the Christians that Peter was talking to. So he addresses them as exiles, both physically and spiritually, those who are different from the society around them, 
and who suffer some sort of backlash as a result. It's been suggested by many scholars that 1 Peter is a sort of baptismal liturgy, like a, so a sort of um, statement of truth that will be read out at baptisms. And you can see why, um, as we go through, you'll see that the things that, are, that he's saying are repeated over and over again throughout uh, the New Testament. If you've got a pen and paper, you, can, you might want to take down some of the references, because some might not have time uh, to sort of read them all out, but there may be some up there as well that you can see. Um, but you'll get a sense that it's, it's not just an isolated message, this, this, this is fundamental Christian living sort of uh, stuff, and I could have taken this in a sense from any uh, a number of passages in the New Testament. For a letter that's apparently primarily concerned with how to deal with present suffering, Peter doesn't launch in with, well, here's what you've got to do to sort it out. He starts by telling them, this is who you are, and this is where you're going. And then he uses that truth to, to direct their, their present conduct. So these are two of the biggest questions that people seem to ask. You know, who am I and where am I going? What's my purpose? If you ever watch Who Do You Think You Are, you see these celebrities and they'll come on and then, you know, they want to find out about their ancestors. They say, oh, I want to know who I am. And this, my great great grandfather was also a celebrity chef. And, you know, that means that you know, I understand where I've come from and, you know, and I know what my purpose in life is and this kind of thing. So, you know, the big questions in a, in a way because they affect the decisions that we make now. So, who are we and what are we here for? So, at the very start of the letter, Peter. Uh, Peter calls them two things, he uses two words, he says elect exiles. So if you're reading the NIV, it, it says something along the lines of to God's elect, uh, and blah blah blah, and then it says who are, who have been chosen. Um, that's actually, it's, it's one word that they've sort of translated it in those two ways to make it flow a bit better. Um, but yeah, so I'll be sort of using elect and chosen um, interchangeably, really, because that's how, how it is in the Bible. So the theme of, of God's choice runs right through the Bible. God chose Abraham, it says in, in Genesis 18, and he chose Jacob, and then through that he chose the nation of Israel. It says, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession, it says in, De in Deuteronomy 7. And now that mantle has passed to us, the church, Peter calls us chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You can see the, um, the parallels between those two verses there. Um, so Peter then goes on to say that we're chosen according to God's foreknowledge. It's not like blind date. You know, I choose number three based on his answer to if you were a vegetable, what would you be and why? And it turned out actually, like, the way day, you did have about as much charisma as a turnip. Um, you know, God, God actually knows what he's in for when God chooses us. He's, he knows what he's in for, but it doesn't, he didn't choose you for your good qualities, uh, but, but he knows all about you. He chose what's, what's foolish in the world, he chose the poor, he chose the few in number. He chose the weak. If you're poor in the world, if this afternoon you feel foolish, you feel weak, if you, you're, you feel like you're in a minority, you're on the outside, God wants you. God, God's chosen you, and you're not an outsider to God. You're exactly who he's chosen you to be. Because he's not going to leave you how he found you. 
He chose you for a purpose, not just to put on a mantelpiece and, and look at. Um, he chose us for obedience to Jesus Christ, it says in this passage. When the Bible speaks of God's choice of us, it's almost always talking about holiness. God says of Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then Paul says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Because God sees what you will be, sanctified, glorified, to the praise of his glory. The whole process from God foreknowing us and choosing us to us being glorified, receiving our inheritance. It's laid out before God. It's all, it's all one and the same to him. He's, he's outside of time and he sees what you will be. He's like a classic car collector who, who buys a rent to restore it, or a home buyer who buys a run-down old barn and renovates it. They see what it will become rather than what it is. We're what Americans would call fixer-uppers. I'll try, and, I'll try not to break out into a song from Frozen. <laughs> well, let's try it for the kids. The only fixer-upper that can fix a fixer-upper is... Anybody? Oh, come on! Come <laughs> on! Come on, just me. I know you So, it's true love. God says of Israel when he chose them, he set his affection on them, his love. Literally, he, he held fast to them, he held onto them with his love. Now, that place is his, his treasured possession. It's been transferred to us, his church. He set his affection on you because you're in Christ. So what God speaks of Jesus is true of us. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one whom I love, in whom I delight, says in Matthew 12. And that's how God sees us. The second term that, that Peter uses here is exiles. Although Peter was talking literally to the diaspora, the dispersed Jews who lived outside of Palestine since the time of, of the exile, there seems to be also a, a metaphorical and a sort of prophetic sense in which that applies to us as well. So the word translated exiles here is Parapidemos, which means those who stay somewhere for a brief time but have citizenship elsewhere. In chapter 2, he calls them sojourners and exiles. The word translated sojourners or foreigners, strangers, aliens is, is paroikos, it's a similar word, but it, that refers to those who live in a place more permanently but they, they have no legal rights there. It's, it's a low status and it, it still is. The Syrian refugee crisis is obviously in the news currently and we see many people's reactions including governments to those sojourners, not, not all of which are positive, so it's our why you're coming into our country and you know, this is essentially what, where these people were, uh, they were you know, those who, were, who had citizenship elsewhere and were, um, yeah, were, were seen as foreigners, but in a sense that can be true of us spiritually. While much of what Peter's on the subject of suffering, it's been suggested that it's addressed to people not persecuted as such, because it was perhaps too early in Christian history for that, but merely discriminated against and 
uh, and ostracized because of their unwillingness to participate in idolatrous practices. So Peter says in chapter 4, for the time is past, for the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sexuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same blood of debauchery and they malign you. One commentator suggested that they experience sort of widespread hostile reactions, but not necessarily state-sponsored persecution as such. So actually, it is very relevant to our situation. Sometimes we can write off these, these sort of uh, sections of the Bible where it talks about persecution, they are not really persecuted, but well, I read an article recently in which the author casually describes evangelical Christians as people from whom many of us might instinctively recoil, which is, you know, nice. Um, they may be despised and, and rejected, but we have our citizenship in heaven. We're in Christ. He was despised and rejected. But as Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious, and so are we. Jesus lived that life of rejection, and more so, he took on our rejection. He took on our rejection by God on the cross when, when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, he was raised to life. And because of that certain fact and the promise that we'll be raised with him and receive our salvation in the last time, we have a living hope and eternal inheritance. We're sprinkled by his blood. If you read Hebrews 9, 15-22, you see that this signifies God's covenant with us, his promise to us that guarantees that inheritance. Once we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now we have a living hope. The word translated hope means a favourable and confident expectation. It's synonymous with trust, really. So I think we sung in one of those songs, uh, there's this kind of that parallel between hoping and trusting in God. The psalmist in, in Psalm 42 tells himself to stop being downcast and hope in God. He's not just saying, you know, stop being downcast and have a vague idea that God might possibly help you. You know, it's not the sort of vague wish that we have. Well, certain of us might have at this time of year, I hope I might get this for Christmas. It's a hope that gets us through tough times. Job says, don't he slay me. I will hope in him. That sounds like a pretty certain thing. Even at the worst of times, we no longer grieve as others do who have no hope because we have that confident expectation for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will attain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of ourselves. This kind of hope, this confident expectation, always rests on a promise. And this living hope of which Peter is speaking here is based on the promise of resurrection. So the writer, the writer of the Hebrews says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And Paul talks in Titus 1 of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope is... <laughs> This hope is laid up for us in heaven. Paul talks at the end of his life in, in 2 Timothy 4 of the crown of righteousness that's laid up for him that will be awarded on the last day. So, does anyone know what this is? It means crown. Does anybody know what it's called? 
the message translation of that is, uh, is roll up your sleeves. So, this is demonstrating that that was the fun as well. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they had, a, they had a similar kind of clothes uh, back then. Uh, it was a girly, it was kind of, yeah, you, you tied it up in this belt between your legs, and it's basically getting getting out of the way, getting unencumbered so that you can uh, so that you can work, so that you can run, so that you can uh, yeah, be prepared for action. What about being sober-minded is? Often we can think about being sober as sort of being solemn and serious and boring, but I don't think it's talking about that kind of thing. I think it is more literally how we think sober in terms of um, drunkenness, but uh, Really, in, in terms of alertness, I suppose. So, so being sober is obviously pretty important when you're driving because you need to be alert, you need to be aware uh, of the hazards that are around you. And uh, if you're not sober, then you're dull to the to those. Your senses are dull to those hazards. So the NIV translates uh, the same, same word elsewhere as keep your head. Other translations say keep a cool head. So, did anybody watch the uh, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week? Yeah. 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 Okay, so there was a moment in that where, so basically they had a load of civilians and they put them through all these Special Forces um, selection procedures. Uh, physical stuff, but also psychological testing. Uh, there was a moment in it where this guy just loses his cool. And it was a really minor thing in a way that he just got frustrated and he sort of snapped at the instructor and I don't remember exactly you know, what he said. But basically, it ended up with him, he was booted out of the process because the guy said, but when you're in a stressful situation, you weren't able to keep your head. But if you want to be an elite special forces soldier, you need to be able to keep your head in any situation, no matter what's being thrown at you. You need to keep a cool head. And it's that same kind of idea here. Not being controlled by passions. In that case, it was anger, but it might be lust or greed. It's keeping, being able to keep, uh, yeah, keep those passions under control. So in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he says, Keep a cool head and be self-controlled. Don't fall back into the debauchery of the Gentiles, because you've died to sin. And Christ has suffered so that we don't have to be subject to human passions. Other translations say, keep awake and be smart. Keep your eye on what you're doing, which is particularly important when you're looking after a one-year-old. Keep your mind, put your mind in gear. So again, if anybody watches Formula One, sometimes uh, when they're at the start, they have these, uh, you find actually there's a driver left on the starting grid as they all fly off. And the problem is, the car wasn't in gear. They were ready, everybody's raring to go, and the lights are going up, and suddenly, oh, I'm not in gear. You're not ready to go. And it's that sense of you need to be ready that when the light goes, you're, you're there like that. So it's often linked with another word, uh, Gregorio, which means be watchful, awake, cautious. It's the same sort of sentiment. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, so then, let's not be like others who are asleep, but let's be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Drunkenness is at least to our senses being dulled and, and sleepiness. This is like Jesus' story of the, uh, the virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come, and um, some of them weren't really prepared because they didn't have enough oil in their, their lamps, and so the lamps burn out before the, the bridegroom comes back. 
And there's another story uh, about servants waiting for their master to come back, and Jesus is saying, you don't know when the master's going to come back. You need to essentially be awake, you know, any time of night, ready for him to come back, because you don't want him to catch you out messing around or, um, you know, sitting in his chair or whatever it is he might be doing. So we need to be actively waiting for God and pursuing holiness so that we're not caught out when, when the time comes. Peter uses the, the same word of, uh, of sort of being awake and cautious and all these things in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. It says, be watchful and alert because the devil is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour, to, to trap in sin. When we live in a foreign country where those around us are following different gods and, and putting their hope in other things, it can be tempting to follow. So in this culture, it might be putting your hope in uh, in jobs, in status, in money, in having lots of friends, in getting lots of likes on Facebook, whatever it might be, it's tempting to, to follow other people around you. And so they need to be told you need to you, know, you need to stand out. If we don't, we can, we can still be caught in it in self-pity and thinking, oh, I'm so lonely, I'm so isolated and separated from everybody. And it's just as bad, we can start to doubt what God's promised us. So we need to be alert to the danger and prepared to fight like the Jews when they were rebuilding the walls with the sword in one hand and the, the trowel in the other. And, and not be like the Midianites who were caught out sleeping in the middle of the night by Gideon and his soldiers. The way we do that is to set our hope on the salvation to come. The passage we just read in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 goes on, but since we belong to the day, let's be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. But God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We put on faith, love and hope, like armour. So you probably know the famous passage in Ephesians 6, where it talks about armour in a similar way. And in both of those, you notice that the helmet is, is salvation, or in this case, the hope of salvation. So we put on that hope we, we fill our minds and our, our souls with that hope so that we're ready for battle. We don't need to be in fear of losing our salvation, but we're all the more vigilant because we know that God has appointed us that salvation because it's secure. And we want to we want to take hold of it. That, make, that makes us more, more vigilant to those attacks that might come in. Paul talks often of holding fast to this hope like an anchor in the storm. And the writer to the Hebrews says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the faith set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone to pour out our and yet, it's more than just holding on and weathering the storm. It's something that should make us rejoice, Peter says. Even in the midst of trials, Paul simply says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Because it allows us to see the trials are temporary. Sometimes that might mean those trials last our whole earthly lives, but in comparison to eternity, it's still a very temporary problem. The hope is something that is much greater, something that is beyond this life. 
Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But when he talks of real suffering that he and his companions uh, experienced, he says, he says, we despaired of life itself. So he obviously thought, you know, he was going through a pretty tough time. But, but what he says is they relied on God who raises the dead. So even though he despaired of life, he said, I know that God can raise the dead. And he said, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We might be tempted to put our hope, our trust in other things. Maybe, it, as Jesus says, in, in self-righteousness and thinking that the Lord can save us, but actually it's the Lord that condemns us. Maybe, it, maybe on self-reliance, but, but I know that I'm no good, so that's a lot of help. Maybe in governments or leaders, in our friends, maybe in some sort of military might thinking, well, if all else fails, you know, at least no one's going to attack us. Whatever it might be that we're putting our hope in, we need to know that this hope in God and the salvation that He's promised is the only sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So, having set our hope in God and not in ourselves and our own holiness, it's only then that Peter can now come on and exhort us as obedient children and as exiles, as citizens of another land. Don't be conformed and be holy. These guys are being ostracised because they're not conforming. Peter said, Peter doesn't say, look, you need to fit in a bit more. Stop being so legalistic. I mean, you need to just maybe give a little. What's wrong with getting drunk occasionally and enjoying a bit of flirtation? Beyond the flood of debauchery, never hurt anyone. He says in the next chapter, actually, because they're exiles, those who are staying temporarily in the land, that because they have their citizenship elsewhere, they shouldn't just take on the characteristics of those around them, but they should be set apart for God. That's what holy means, it means set apart. He says that these sinful desires wage war against your soul. There's a place for being all things to all men, but we have to be willing to make a stand when it comes to our own morality. Whatever you do, people will tempt you and accuse you, and sometimes both at the same time. But we have to keep alert, keep our conduct honourable, he says, knowing that in the end, even those people will glorify God for it, even, even if now they're accusing us. The main way that we can do that is by loving one another. So he says in verse 22, just, just after where we stopped, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Jesus says this is how people will know we're his disciples. But the motivation for this always comes back to our election, our redemption, our inheritance. So, so Paul says in Colossians 3, Call on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and love, and list all these things that we should uh, be doing. And, and Peter says in his next letter, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. So he makes it very clear that it's God who's given us these gifts. It's him who's called us. But then he goes on to say, make every effort to be holy. And then he, he sort of wraps it back round again and says, but whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So in case they weren't sure, he's just you know, before and after this command to say, be holy, you say, no, you're doing this because you're chosen, you're doing this because you have an inheritance. Therefore, brothers, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, so that 
you'll be welcomed into the kingdom. He called us and gave us everything we need for a godly life, so live a godly life, and in so doing, confirm your calling. It all comes back to God choosing us. And this holiness, this obedience, it's not, it's not achieved by our, our own strength, but Peter says it's in or by or through the sanctification of the Spirit. So this, this sanctification is, is both the sense of um, being set apart from sin, and also that sense of God gradually purifying us over time to be to be becoming like him. Peter was just exhorting them to holiness because it's the right thing to do, or because in some way they would earn God's favour, then it would be meaningless to There'd be no motivation. But actually Peter gives them both the motivation and and the means. So the motivation because God's chosen you and because you have a hope and an inheritance and the means is by the Spirit. So we're not doing it uh, under our own steam and we're not doing it to earn God's favour. But for them, Paul can say in 1 Timothy 4, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. And in Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. Because God's given us this inheritance, we work all the more to obtain it. If you were given a, a sports scholarship to a prestigious university, I think these are perhaps things that happen a bit more in America, but my cousin has just, just got a, like an athletic scholarship to, uh, to a university in, uh, in the States. If you if you got something like that, you know you might be waiting a few months, perhaps until you took up that scholarship. You wouldn't think, oh, so I've got it now, job done. I can just blob out and you know sit on the sofa and crisps, would you? <laughs> you would you train all the harder so that when you got there, you were ready to play. You were ready to run. You were at your fittest and your best because you want to perform. You want to live up to that that you've been given. Want to take advantage of everything that's been offered to you in a sense. So working hard, girding our loins, that being prepared, being sober-minded. We do these things to, not to earn our inheritance, but it's that the knowledge of that inheritance that motivates us to behave accordingly. And ultimately, it's so that God might be praised and glorified. And as Peter says in this passage, so that the test of genuineness in your faith, more precious than gold. That perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the next chapter, again, it says that the reason for these things is that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And again, in chapter 4, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, this pattern of thought uh, that, we've, that we've been going through here, that You've been chosen in order to bear fruit. And that Christ died for you to win you this inheritance. It's, it's, this pattern of thought is repeated so many times in the New Testament writings. If we look at Ephesians 1, if we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, Romans 5 and 6. It, it, like I said, I could, in a sense, I'm going to preach this from any one of these passages. You've been chosen, you've been chosen for obedience to bear fruit. 
Jesus died for you to win your eternal inheritance in him. Therefore, set your hope in him and be holy. Knowing what God's done and what he's promised. It's like having a rear guard and a vanguard as we cross through this hostile territory. Living as exiles and foreigners, Satan prowls like a lion, trying to tempt us to wander astray, to stop trusting God and put our hope in something else, or to seek our own glory and pleasure. Sometimes he comes from behind and questions our hearts and says, you're not good enough for God, you know, the things that you've done or your upbringing, you shouldn't be here. But God's word says, no, you're chosen, ransomed, sprinkled with his blood, delighted in my God, just as Jesus is. Sometimes he attacks us from, from in, in front, in a sense. He says, you know, we get those feelings of, oh, my life has no purpose, and I don't know where I'm going. But to this, God's word says, I have a certain hope, a guaranteed inheritance, and being saved for the praise and glory of God. And if, if we go in our loins, if we hold fast to that sure and steadfast anchor, and we refuse to conform, we can stand firm, we can fight off that prowling lion. We can take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us, living holy lives that glorify God in the midst of trials, even rejoicing, knowing that we're attaining the salvation that's been laid out for us in heaven.